Welcome to Sibet, the podcast about psychology, philosophy, and minor grievances which shall not stand. I'm your host, Sophia, and this is Greg. Hello. <laughs> Today on the show, we're discussing the possibility of robots taking our jobs, or specifically AI, machine learning, evolution of technology. I feel like it's a topic that's very prevalent in media, in the job market, basically everywhere and it's something I hadn't really thought much about until the past year and especially in like the past few months um I mean like most recently the guy from chat GPT the guy who like basically made it um has been in the news for like the whole thing where his company kicked him out Microsoft hired him and then he went back to his company stuff like that and kind of when I saw that on the news I was thinking about um AI in general and how like the regulations behind AI and how much um, regulation there even is for it. But even before then, I've been thinking about it in my own life just because I know a lot of people who actually use ChatGPT, who are interested in machine learning, who are interested in computer science specifically. And it's never really been a field that I've been interested in because I feel like I'm kind of like an oldie when it comes to technology. I'm not even old, but like I just use my phone as like, a browser and I just use my computer as a computer. I don't use anything, like I don't optimize it for anything, but as more and more people in my life have been using AI who have been um, telling me about like computer specs and like kind of just explaining technology to me, I've realized that it's just become mainstream and part of regular life now. And I was like, oh, I should probably get caught up on this because it's not just like something for tech bros anymore for Silicon Valley executives. It's like something that everyone kind of knows it's like part of tech literacy now so I started you know thinking more I guess about chat GPT and AI and specifically like in schools and in jobs and stuff because a lot of my friends are students or like grad students here and I hear them talk about like using chat GPT to help them with their essays for example or like to help them like if they'll do an economics problem, they'll like put it through ChatGPT and be like, how do I solve this and stuff like that. And I used to think that was like cheating because I'm kind of a goody two shoes and I'm like, I need to learn everything and then actually do it myself. But when I saw them do it, it was like, it's not necessarily like giving them the answer because I don't think the robot is smart enough to like always understand what you're asking unless you know specifically how to ask for it but it's more like guiding you and giving you a suggestion of like how to get from A to B. And I was like, oh, that's actually really helpful because sometimes you'll be learning something, but you won't actually know like how to apply it. And just by using like, you know, ChatGPT or an AI to help you can give you like the tools you need to like succeed, I guess. And 
I kind of used it for myself recently also because <laughs> I quit my job and I had to look for new jobs. And I just did the regular thing where I'm, again, I'm just too much of a goody two shoes that I just write my own cover letters and like optimize my resume per job, like all by myself. And it was taking a really long time and I was getting like really burnt out in the job search process. And then once I realized that my friends were using ChatGPT for school, I was like, oh, I wonder if I can use this for job searching. And it actually helped a lot because, for example, you can just put like a job description in ChatGPT and be like, write up interview questions for this job. And then I'll write up a bunch of relevant interview questions and then I can practice from there. And it's not so much like I used to think that was like, okay, like, are you really prepared for the job if you like kind of know what they're going to ask beforehand? But then at the same time, you're, when you're preparing for a job, even without like AI or like a machine helping you like figure out what questions they might ask, it's like you're also kind of hypothesizing what they're going to ask anyway, like you're guessing for yourself. And this way, they kind of like take the results from the internet or like past jobs with similar job descriptions, and they come up with things that have actually been asked. So I feel like in that way, it's more accurate. And it saved me a lot of time. Like writing cover letters can get kind of exhausting. And honestly, the language in ChatGPT isn't really that great. So like when I copy a cover letter, it's not like I'm doing it word for word, but it helps me like get ideas down and just be like, okay, I did this. This is how it applies to the job, etc. So once I started using it for myself, I was like, okay, this is kind of valid. It saves a lot of time and it allows you to like think or like do like the the critical thinking, the actions, the application of what it gives you more and saves like you from doing like the menial work of just like figuring out like, what should I even put in this cover letter? Cause like you have your resume, you have your experience and then you just put it into ChatGPT and it pumps it out for you. And I'm like, this is very useful. Where was this like five years ago when I was applying for college? I feel like would have been helpful for like even, you know, college statements, stuff like that. And as I was like thinking about how I use it for my own job, how my friends use it for school and just like Gen Z of coming into college, how people like learn these days, I was kind of thinking about how AI is just going to be part of society now. So many people use it. And I think it's just going to be like one of those things where you just have to learn how to use it. Otherwise, um, not that you'll be left behind or anything. It's just, it's just going to be part of society. And not in, like, the way that media portrays or, like, movies portray, like, robots taking your jobs or, like, your life being taken over by technology and stuff. Like, obviously, your phone, your computer, et cetera, are just going to be part of your daily life. Now, they happen for a really long time, and they're just going to continue to do so. So I think, like, with the evolution of all this stuff, it's just going to continue being part of your life. And it's kind of like what I think of as a comparison is like the graphing calculator, because, you know, when you're doing trigonometry, algebra, nowadays, you kind of have to have a graphing calculator, like they require it a lot of times in syllabuses, or syllabi. And I feel like they didn't used to do that. I mean, I haven't been, I've only been a student for like, you know, 16 years. So like before then, I don't know what they did, like, did they require calculators when it was invented? Maybe I should have looked that up. But I just have a feeling that when they like started doing trigonometry and stuff, they didn't have graphing calculators and then they invented it to help it or to help mathematicians out. So they didn't have to do like the math behind it. They could like do it more quickly and then figure out 
how to apply that information. So I feel like in a similar way, chat GPT is like the graph and calculator, like where it wasn't a thing before, but now it's like so mainstream and like required of students to learn it that it's going to become something where it's hard to explain, like people have to learn or like, it's just going to be part of like how people learn specifically. And I guess like what I think about is just like an education in general, like how people are learning now. Cause like, it's been a while since I've been in high school, but I remember like in my last year of high school, they started introducing like Chromebooks or like iPads to like our curriculum, like where we had to learn on technology. And I'm sure like in COVID high schoolers would start have to learning on like their own on computers or like they got supplied computers and stuff like that. So technology is just becoming like part of their education system. And I feel like that just changes like how their brains work, like how they think of how to solve a problem. Like where, when I was, I mean, honestly, I wasn't in school that long ago, so I don't know why I'm talking like I'm so old, but like when I was in school, I had like textbooks and stuff. And the way we did assignments is that we had to like, you know, look in the textbook for information and stuff like that. Whereas now, since like technology, computers, the internet are so accessible, especially with students having iPads often given to them by their teachers and schools. Um, Just like learning how to like search something on the internet more efficiently, learning how to ask an AI something more efficiently in order to get the answer so that they can write their essay based on the information that the AI or Google gives them. It's like, I think that's going to become a skill now. And like, students are just going to be honed into like that way of thinking more, like more of an analytical way of thinking as opposed to just um, not like just like, I think it's still analytical to like read books and like figure out information for yourself. But I think it's just like, you know, it's just like a different tool, a different way of thinking. And I just think it's really interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see how academics evolve, how people use that to their advantage, like, how students, as they, like, cycle through this phase of technology and AI, how they um, change their way of thinking. Because if I was, like, born a couple years later, I would have to learn this in high school and stuff. And I think it would change how I was a student in college. So I just think it's interesting to think about. Um, And then, oh, yeah, also recently... There was a talk from the president of Singapore. He actually went to Columbia University for a talk, which was very interesting to me because I was like, why is he here? Like, there's so many resources that the school has randomly. And I listened to the live stream of it. And he was talking about, or a student asked him about basically like the role of technology in Singapore. Basically, Singapore is like a very growing nation. They're getting very popular or like powerful now. And I think it was, like, expected in 2025 for them to be, like, one of the most powerful nations. But don't quote me on that because I think I might be overestimating. But anyway, essentially, they're, like, a very small country, but they're very powerful. They're very forward-thinking and very on top of, like, trends like AI, um, stuff like that. So someone was asking, like, how are they planning to, like, incorporate technology into like a growing workforce like especially as like most of their population I think is aging like old and like most of the workforce is like you know very established so it might be hard for like young workers to get like entry-level jobs they were asking how he planned 
this president to like empower young workers, especially with like AI taking a lot of um, entry level jobs. And so he said something which I thought was kind of funny where he was like, AI isn't going to steal your job, but someone who knows how to use AI better than you will steal your job. So he was basically saying that like the computer itself, it doesn't have the power to think or like do the job for you because essentially a job is like you applying knowledge into like a field of work, whereas the AI is just like supplying you with that knowledge. So basically they have a program in place in Singapore where they're going to help out with like technological integration. So basically they're training people like young people on how to, you know, work with AI, how to like um, program it. I think it's like a growing field of science also is like machine learning, engineering, machine learning science, et cetera. So essentially what they want to do in Singapore is like make sure that young people like understand how like technology works and make sure that there's like room for them to have a job amongst like technology, if that makes sense. But basically he said that like AI is taking like entry level jobs that no one really wants to do. Like he said it in the realm of like coding and engineering. He was like, they get to write like backend code that no one really like wants to do now. But um, he also said that like basically AI or chat GPT machine learning can't really do um, what like the human aspect of it, because at the end of the day, it's still a machine, but um, there will always be jobs when it can, like when it has that limitation of not being able to think like a human and only being able to like spew out information that it already had access to on the internet. So I thought that was just like an interesting way to think about AI as like just a tool and less so of like this overarching, like thinking machine that will like take, um, I don't know, take your job. I mean, that's like what I thought of it to be honest, because I'm very naive and I'm not caught up on technology or AI or anything, but thinking about it in that lens was like, Oh, okay. Like this is a part of the workforce now and just learning how to like use it to your advantage is going to be, I think a skill that people will need to learn. Um, and I'd never thought of that before. So I'm going to have to start learning AI, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, um, another way that I've thought about AI was through the lens of art. Actually, this is like the first way that I ever thought about, because I, like I said, I've never used ChatGPT until like three months ago when I was doing a job search. But before that, I had seen a lot of stuff on like NFTs and also... AI generated art, especially like as a person, I'm very interested in digital art. I like graphic design. I do some graphic design. So like when I like when I'm just like looking up stuff on that, I always see like AI generated stuff and also NFTs like creating that stuff is like, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, have you made NFTs? Like once I say I'm interested in graphic design, I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. It seems so soulless to me. Like I've never been an advocate for AI art because I think like art is just like a very human process. Like to me, at least when I connect with like something artistic, it's because it's like talking about very human feelings like loss or love or grief or all these things that I like a machine in my opinion cannot feel. So when I think about like art generated by a robot, it's like, how is the robot going to know like how to depict loss or like 
yearning. Like it doesn't know that inherently. It's just like spewing out what it already knows, like from the internet, which someone else told it to feel. So I've never liked it. I thought it was soulless. I just didn't think it was, it hit the same as like an artist that actually made the art. But at the same time, I'm very, I think I'm open-minded. I like to think I'm open-minded, but I also like hypocritically follow a lot of AI art bots on social media just because I think they're kind of funny (laughs) when I see them on my timeline. I'm like, oh, look at this robot generated art. So cute. But sometimes I'm like scrolling through, I follow a lot of artists and I'm scroll through and I'd be like, oh, this art is really pretty. And then I'll see who it's by. And it's like a AI bot. And I'm like, oh, so I can get affected by AI art, even though if I had known it was by an AI, I would have probably had like this preconceived bias against it. So I was thinking about it and I was like, I like what, what makes art art? Like what makes it moving? Because I'm already like, I can be moved so easily, I think. And especially like when it's like a visual art form or like poetry or lyrics, I'd like to think like they're very vague. They don't really touch on like the specific emotion of someone, but they kind of hint at it. And that's like my favorite kind of like art is just when it's a little hint at like what someone is feeling And I feel like it's very easy for AI to like just hint at something in art. Like the pieces that I've seen, at least they've been like kind of blurry. They like mix colors together. They never show like faces or like hands are very, also very hard for them to draw apparently. But um, it's just very, it's like a very meshed up like fever dream of what an art piece could be. But I kind of like that kind of art anyway. So whenever I see it, I'm like, hmm, this is actually kind of, nice or like kind of like what I like to see so it just it just makes me think of like what what art I enjoy I guess I don't know to be honest but the way that I think of it is just like I had this conversation with someone about AI art and how much I hate it and they were saying that like basically AI is like a tool for an AI artist in the same way that a pencil is a tool for an artist. So like the AI artist has to like tell the AI what to do. Like they have to prompt them to like draw a man on a boat, for example, but they can't just say a man on a boat because then it generates like the most generic image that you could ever see, but they have to like do it in a way that like executes their vision. So you have to understand like what words will get them there. Like what, phrases what art styles like maybe draw a man on a boat in the renaissance art style for example like you would have to have that knowledge of like what you're looking for and like the art knowledge before you create that piece of art so when I thought of it like that I was like oh it's actually not as like talentless or so, like I'm so biased I'm sorry but like I thought it was just like someone just putting something in a machine and then it comes up with like this whole art piece with like zero effort but when I talked about it like that or when someone else talked about it like that I was like oh actually I can see the validity in that in seeing AI as like more of a tool and less of you know something doing entirely all the work for you because like even when an artist like what do they call it a traditional media artist is doing an art piece um they would have to know in their head what their vision is and they're using their pencil or their art paints to um, 
paint their vision. So like they have to like actually have the technical skill in order to like execute. And in the same way, I think AI artists have to do AI artists have to do that too. Is like they have to have the technical skills. They have to know how to program the spot. They have to know what to say, what styles they want in order to create that vision. So in a way, I think it's still not comparable to like a traditional artist. But I think once I think of it like in that way, it's like I think it can be valid as an art piece or like as an art form, as long as you like acknowledge what the limitations are and just see it as like what it is like, okay, this is something made essentially by a robot. Like the robot just took images that already existed on the internet and put it into a new image. And once you understand that, you're like, okay, this collage of images from the internet is kind of interesting as an interpretation, but Obviously, it doesn't compare to something someone created originally. Like, I feel like that is way different. Like, I think you would have to come up with the idea in your head and to execute that specifically on paper as it is in your head, I think is also very hard. But once you like, or at least once I thought of it in two different ways, it made me more feel less opposed to AI art or AI in general. I was like, okay. Like it can be used to help you, it can be used to help you in your art, it can be used to help you in your academics, in your life, really. But um, just like understanding the limitations that it has and like that you're still, at least the way that it is now, I don't know how it's going to evolve in the next few years, but the way that it is now, I think you have to, um, you aren't able to like do as much as I thought at least, like you aren't able to like have it write your whole essay and like in the style that you want it to, but it can help you with like suggestions and you can take those suggestions to help you in your own work. So um, in that way, I think that AI is pretty okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's my conclusion, but that's kind of what I think is that I used to be someone who was very opposed to AI not a very technological person just because I didn't want it. I've always like been ingrained with the idea that like they're going to steal my information they're going to hack into me and stuff like that. But at this point it's like everyone has your information anyway. So might as well use it to my advantage, I guess. Okay. There's a lot to unpack. Um, okay. I guess. So I was taking notes while you were ranting today. Um, Sorry. So I, no, this is this is good because then I'll keep hopefully keep my thoughts in order. I won't ramble so much. Um, so first, when you were talking about kind of the role of AI in education and the role that it plays for, you know, like you said, when you were in high school, that like your senior year was the year that your school got Chromebooks. Um, and I I'm so first of all when I was in school and thinking about like graphing calculators and stuff like that. Um, one of the things I remember them hammering home was that was kind of when Wikipedia became a thing. And so there was like this big diatribe by people, by teachers against students using Wikipedia to like source their papers. Um, but you know, I think after the, it, I almost feel like that was like a nascent, version of teachers warning students against using chat GPT to start their papers is it's like, it's this nascent fear because people don't understand what the tool is. 
And like now, if you go to research a paper, like most of the time, Wikipedia is probably the first place you go because you can always go to the cited sources and then that like gets you down the rabbit hole to find the first party stuff that you need to write the paper. Um, and then as you were talking about like how you think, you know, during COVID and during, you know, how high schoolers would have needed to change the way that they interface with technology. Um, my, you know, my oldest kid was in kindergarten that year. Um, and so I can, you know, firsthand account, I can say that his kindergarten year was almost entirely based on, based in technology and his knowledge of, of those platforms is just astronomical compared to, you know, and, you know, granted it's stuff that a kindergartner can learn, but just, you know, kind of that digital native aspect of things like, you know, he, he knows more about coding than I did by the time I was in college. Right. Um, and even going to my youngest kid, thinking about the stuff that she watches on like PBS, you know, if you think about kind of your, your prototypical PBS show, you might think of like Sesame street. Right. And kind of, you know, regardless of what the, the episode is about kind of the underpinning of every show is it's teaching kids how to count and it's teaching kids their letters. Um, well, there's a show that my daughter really likes called Molly of Denali, which is like a new er PBS kids show. And it's like the same people that did curious George and all this stuff. But the premise of the show or like the underpinning of every episode besides the story is how they solve a problem in every episode is they have to learn how to obtain the information that they need. So whether it's like looking through a guidebook and being able to like find the right page to find something or like internet searches, cause it takes place in Alaska where there's like nobody to ask. So they have, they have to basically use tech to figure out what they need to do to solve whatever problem they have. Um, and I think that points to, how we're changing how we teach kids it's not so much like memorizing times tables or you know, whatever that might be it's actually knowing how to access that information and i feel like that's kind of what having an you know having a phone in your pocket all the time or just having constant connectivity that's how we're rewiring our brains and that's how we're changing how we approach trying to find things um and then kind of getting into the rest of your rant um I think there are kind of two different ideas in what you're saying that kind of play off of each other. And one is kind of the existential idea of AI. And one is like the economic human capital side of it, right? So from the existential side, I think we, as humans, our brains are wired to look for patterns and things uh, and like find shortcuts to understand what's in front of us. And if we don't have an understanding of a thing, and if we can't, intuit based on what we already know, our brains kind of freak out. And we have a tendency to assign basically like magical properties to it. Um, you know, before we understood like weather patterns, for example, there would be like a tornado or a hurricane and whatever. And people would say that the gods are angry. And there are a million things that we've ascribed to like God's will or whatever. Um, in my homeowner's insurance, um, there is a clause about acts of God, which is bonkers. But what it really means is, you know, quote unquote, like we don't want to write out every example of an extreme weather pattern or like a municipal sewage backup or climate change induced locust swarm. So we'll just shorthand it to be this colloquialism. 
Um, or, or if I were to like pull out a quarter and say, call it in the air and then I flip it, what would you call that? Oh, what do you mean? Oh, chance? Chance or like luck, right? Yeah. Um, and that's like this magical word because like it's a 50-50 shot about whether you'll guess right. But you're only guessing because you can't do the math in your head. But like if we were to freeze frame the quarter at like the moment my thumb flips it, you could calculate the force that's going into the quarter and the vector angle and the weight of the quarter and gravity and how high it was from the floor and how bouncy the floor is. And you could write a math equation to like tell me whether it's going to land heads or tails, but it happens too fast for us to do all that. So then we just call it luck or chance. And that's like that magic catch all right. And you know, people cross their fingers and they have all this superstitious shit. That's like this magical thinking to be lucky. And like, no, I'm not above that. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to say that I don't believe in luck because, again, it's like this magical thing. And I still, you know, turn my hat inside out when the twins are down a run in the ninth or like, you know, I'll buy a lottery ticket sometimes. Um, but like if we're not talking about a quarter, um, I, I guess a different way that I can think of to look at it is like a couple months ago, someone set the world record for beating Super Mario Brothers um, on like the old Nintendo. And the record was like 16 sixtieths of a second faster than the old world record, which is basically how the record has been broken like every time for the last couple of years. And it's, it's super granular like that because at the beginning when they first started keeping track, someone would break the record by five seconds or 10 seconds and runs would be all over the place because Mario's kind of a random game, right? So like, the enemies show up in different places at different times. So like sometimes you have to slow down in a spot or like jump different or whatever. Um, but then someone figured out how that randomness works. So um, when you turn on a Nintendo, all of the processes in the game chip are at zero, right? And then when you power it up, the random number generator, basically like the coin that's inside of the game starts generating all these random numbers to kind of, you know, decide what things are going to happen randomly. Um, and it generates it like one sixtieth of a second at a time. Um, so when you like, you know, load a Goomba into world one or whatever. Well, so the people that are really into this, like broke down that random number generator one sixtieth of a second at a time. And they figured out that if you press start at this very specific moment after you turn the game on, you can force a number that gives you the same game every time. And so now it comes down to like, 100% playing that version of the game perfectly. So it takes out all the luck involved. Um, so I guess all that to say, whether it's, you know, God or luck or AI, um, there's like a million disparate things that kind of fall under those banners. And with AI, you know, it's like this magic buzzword for tools that we've had for a long time, I think. Um, and I'll rant about the money side of that in a second, I think. But um, so I work in Photoshop for work, right? Um, and the latest like version update of that changed the names of a bunch of shit in the program. So there's like this tool that you can use that you can like sample points in a photo and create kind of like a stamp thing that you can like edit out a reflection or a smudge or like we've had red eye filters on cameras forever. Um, 
So all that stuff in Photoshop got rebranded as part of their AI suite. But like it's the, there's nothing new. It's just called something different. They've all been in the program forever. Um, and they're branded as part of like this smart AI engine. And like, if this is your first time ever going into Photoshop, why would you assume that it's any different? Um, so I don't know. Did you ever have to learn Boolean logic? Um, yes. So like in the library in middle school, did they ever teach you like search like and or if you're trying to find something or oh is that what boolean logic is oh. yeah it's like it's like if then that. statements that basically forces computers to do things yes so when you're talking about the singapore president and when he was talking about how ai won't take your job someone who knows how to take what was it someone who knows how to use ai will so when you said that i still feel like he's using ai as like that magical term but I don't think he's so far off base. So like a librarian needs a master's of science degree to be a librarian. Cause like, like that Boolean thing, like categorizing and preserving information is ultimately a science, right? So libraries have all of these logic systems in place to keep track of all the shit that's in there. And like, obviously a librarian's job is way more complex than keeping stuff in order. Um, stick with me on this one. Uh, this, like layman's term idea. I promise I'm almost to a point. So Boolean. Um, and like, I'm just at the right age where when I was in school, we had to learn the Dewey Decimal System. And that was going to be like super important. Um, and that kind of went away when libraries replaced all the card catalogs with computers, right? Um, but anyway, so when they first started having these computerized cataloging systems in the library, the way you had to learn to find a book or an article in the stacks was you had to search in a very specific logical way. Um, and so it went from the librarian having to know that if you're looking for books about luck and divinity, let's say, um, they know that the books about the psychology of luck would be in the 100 section and books that are about divinity are in the 200 section. And then if you want a book about the social ramifications of, say, a randomization model, that's going to be in the 300 section because that's like the social sciences section. And then if you want a book about random number generators, that would be like technology books. And those are in 600, I think. Um, but then, when, you know, when computer searches started coming in, you didn't have to memorize that decimal thing. You had to know how to use and, you know, and or logic, right? So there was this specific order and syntax that you had to follow to make the computer spit out the results you want, which is when you're talking about AI, I think kind of where we are with what that technology is, is learning what those logical statements are to make it do what you want it to do. But like, that's not new. Like that's how early internet search engines work too. Like that's what made Google so awesome is like when it came out is they figured out, they basically made a chat GPT predecessor so like you could search for stuff with normal sentences and it would parse what you were trying to say and figure out the Boolean stuff that's under the hood. And like all of a sudden you didn't have to know Boolean anymore to find an article on luck and divinity. And so then like, like you said, I think chat GPT is the next step in that. So now the language model is more sophisticated. So your searches can be more abstract and the software is going to get 
you know, better and better at spitting out what you're trying to get at, right? And that's like where you're talking about the people that know how to use that logic right now are getting the best results now. But the longer that this goes on, I think that's going to that barrier to entry is going to get lower and lower and lower. But like, all that is still an iteration on the Dewey decimal system, right? If you get super granular about it. So it's not magic. It's like, you know, all the art generators and all that stuff. I mean, they're just, I feel like they're just variations on tools we've had forever. Um, and that makes me think about the writer strikes that were going on. Um, and I guess this is where I switched the money side of the whole thing. So like the whole thing with AI in that case is not that they're worried about that they're going to be replaced by AI or that somebody who knows how to use it is going to replace them. It's that they're worried that a studio is going to misrepresent what that AI thought starter script actually is. And so instead of paying a room of writers to write a script, they pay that same room of writers to edit a pre-existing script, which is like pay scaled way lower. But if you're writing, you know, but if you're writing for a movie, there's always rewriting that happens on the set. Like if a special effect doesn't work or if your budget gets blown so that your scene about a car chase gets turned into a standoff in the parking lot or whatever. And like, I think that's where I start thinking about whether a piece of AI technology is something I should be concerned about or like wary of as more than a tool. Um, it, th so there's an old quote from. Douglas Adams, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that. Um, and it's something like anything that was invented before you're a teenager is just how the world is. Um, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and when you're 35, that's like the new and exciting thing. And that's how you're going to make money in your lifetime. Uh, and then anything that gets invented after you turn 35 is like the thing that's going to ruin the world like bring down the down, you know, bring the downfall of humanity. Um, and I guess with that, I guess I try as a rule to never have that over 35 mindset, especially because I think what's going to ruin the world is like all the baggage we're still carrying from all the people who are already dead. But also to say that I'm not going to fall for like the doom and gloom of it. I think that also means I can't fall for the new shiny thing either. Um, so like everything has an analog before it and like to your point about graphing calculators, like those are just speeding up having to graph tables by hand, right? Like, did you ever have to graph a parabola by hand, like on graph paper? I think like a couple times. Well, and right. That's when it ends, right? Like they made us do that in freshman algebra. So we'd understand what the TI 83 was doing. Um, and then they never made us do it again because it's just slow, busy work. Like you don't learn anything from it. It just takes time. And like, that's everything, right? Like cars put the boogie, you know, the, the buggy whip salesman out of business. Um, and I don't know, they talk about like self-driving electric cars, putting Uber out of business. But like, if we're talking about the money side of things, Uber made all its money because they don't have to own and maintain cars, right? And they don't have to pay driver's insurance. But if you have a fleet of electric cars, all of a sudden you have to maintain them and you have to carry insurance for them. So ultimately like, you know, that's not where the money is. So you're never going to see that happen. And I think ultimately you have to look at who's making the money off of something, you know, is AI a shorthand for a sweatshop in Southeast Asia? 
at the end, you know, at the end of the day, it's all the same robber baron bullshit that they've been looking for ways to obfuscate what they've always done. And like, not to say that, not to say that Singapore, like that comes out weird. It's not that I'm using that as the shorthand, but you see that with like Theranos, for example, right? Like their AI technology that was doing all the things about blood work you know, it was like a fake it till you make it thing. And ultimately what they were doing was outsourcing it to labs that they weren't paying people very much for to do the same work or just making up the results. So then the last point I wrote down um, when you were talking about AI art and the human element of art, I guess this kind of goes back to the luck thing. Um, I was thinking about like human element is like another one of those fuzzy magic words that we use. And I was trying to think of what that's a shorthand for, because I think like the coin thing, what makes art by a person feel like, you know, what is that? What makes art by a person feel like it's from a person or specifically like great art? What makes great art special? And he talked about like human emotion. I think you can even drill down and take the magic out of that too. Okay, uh, two stories. I'm on a roll now. Um, okay, first, there's this book that I really love called Candy Freak. And it's by a guy named Steve Almond. It's over here. Um, and it's about like the death and resurrection of regional independent candy companies. Um, and there's an interview in that book that's kind of stuck with me. And I don't remember which company it is. But so the owner he was talking to inherited this candy company. Um, and all the machinery in it was old and falling apart. And it took up like two buildings and it was slow and they couldn't get parts to fix it anymore. So he like brought in culinary engineers and whatever. And they figured out how to replace everything with like new candy cookers um, and extruders and whatever. And, you know, they were way more efficient and all that. And they could kind of like consolidate everything down to one building and like sell half the real estate and still have enough room to like keep all their employees and whatnot. So they built this new factory area while the old one was still running. Um, and they started doing test batches um, to make sure they had it all dialed in before they shut all the old stuff down. And the candy wouldn't come out right, right? Like they had it nailed. The recipe was identical. Uh, the cooking temperature was identical. The way they, ex you know, the way the extruder pushed every, everything was the same. Um, but they take the candy to test groups and it was obviously not the same thing as what was coming out of the old machines. And all these old timers in the candy factory were like, you know, you can't just, you, you can't replace the magic of what these old machines do. Right. Like it, it was like this magical thinking about it's always worked and that's why it's different. Cause you're trying to change something. But eventually like one of the food scientists they hired was like, nah, fuck that. We're, we're missing something. So she goes into the factory floor with like a clipboard and a stopwatch, right? And she documents the whole process from like the time they put the bag of sugar in the hopper, down the conveyor belts, you know, into the oven, whatever. And then she realized the candy would come out of the process like halfway through. And there was this old guy that worked there. His name was George. Let's say it's George. I remember the real name from the book. So like George would take the cart of half done candy and he'd shuffle down the hall and like across the sidewalk and he'd go into the other building where the rest of the machinery was. And then he'd like load that cart of candy into the next part of the process. And like George had done that to every batch for 40 years. 
So the scientist times it. And then she goes over to the new building and she has them like start a batch. And halfway through, she has them stop. And she like takes the candy out and she takes it over to a hallway and just like sits it there for like eight minutes, however long it took George to like walk to the other building. And then she like went back and put all the candy back in the machine. And then it came out and it was the same. Like it was just like a detail that they missed that had nothing to do with the machinery at all. It was just like an inefficiency in the old process that like oxidized the candy or whatever. And like, that was the difference. Um, And so, you know, when you, you know, and then at the end of all that, like they made the new factory thing work and they just like had a spot on the floor with a timer on it so that they would just pull it out and then it would work. And they basically like AI the George element out of the candy. Um, So last story, Um, there is an interview there's an interview with Quentin Tarantino. Um, I love Quentin Tarantino. I still kind of do. I'm basic like that. Um, and he was talking about, he used to take acting classes and study with stage actors when he was starting out. Cause like, he didn't know if he was going to be a director. So he was trying to be like a writer and an actor and a director and like, just see where he could get his foot in the door. Um, so the story goes, I think, um, he was shadowing this stage actor understudy he was an understudy he was like the backup um and he's in this comedy production and this day the the actor was late to the performance and so he shows up all grumpy and he doesn't talk to anyone like he usually does and he like gets in makeup or whatever um and then he goes out and he has like the best performance he's ever had and like the crowd's eating it up the whole cast is getting elevated the laughs are really big like it's this magical thing and the curtain goes down and the show's over and Quentin's backstage and he goes up to the guy and he's like, man, what the fuck? That was incredible. Like, what happened? Um, and the actor is like, well, you know, Quentin, on the way in, I hit a dog with my car. Um, that's why I was late. Like, I didn't, I had to, like, look at this lady and tell her I was sorry and her dog was dead. And, like, I almost didn't show up. And, the, you know, the story goes, you know, it wasn't that all of a sudden the actor shows up. And his performance is about hitting a dog with his car. But whatever emotion he was putting into his lines and like how he moved and how he interacted with people around him were all informed by that experience because like, how could they not be? And like the audience couldn't know that's why they were seeing what they were seeing. And like, if you recorded that performance and put it into a performance capture generator, like it could mimic the performance's beats but it couldn't know that he's laughing the way he is because he's covering up a choke in his throat. Um, just the way to your point, like you could feed a Van Gogh painting in to an, to an AI generator and it could spit out like a perfect copy of the painting, but like maybe Van Gogh pushed his brush against the canvas a little harder when he painted with yellow because some childhood trauma made him hate yellow. And so that's why the moon in his painting is extra intense. So like if someone tells the image generator to paint their mom, like Van Gogh's self-portrait, maybe it's always going to look a little off because the programmers didn't like put a command into the model to tell it to hate yellow a little bit. And like, there's a million of like, I think that's the human element. There's a million of those little human element things that are technically quantifiable, 
but we haven't figured out how to program intent like that yet. And I don't think I don't think we'll ever truly get to that point. And I think that's why there will always be some sort of uncanny valley with fingers or whatever it happens to be. Like we'll get closer and closer and closer, but no matter how I don't know. And maybe that's the Luddite in me. They'll probably figure it out. Yeah, that's the thing. There's so many movies like her, you know, or like anything where it talks about how human AI can be. And I feel like they're going to get there without regulation. So the important thing is regulation. (laughs) Right. But also her is a performance by an actor, you know? true like it's about ai and that's the thing with like sci-fi in general is whatever tech is in it is is magic to get to whatever your actual point is like and there's hard science fiction which is all about like going through what that tech is and being a very big emphasis on that but ultimately when we're talking when we're when non-technical people use technical things to then get a point across it is almost always at some point hand waving away the limitations because like we'll figure it out but we won't you know we don't know how yet and if you look at old sci-fi stuff most of the time we still haven't figured it out that's actually a good point yeah it's just like pop culture science not actual science it's like how we thought we would have flying cars by now right but we like we can't figure out how cars. to get cars to drive themselves without running into people. I think there are self-driving cars now. There are, but they're not good. They're okay. I, I don't. I mean, I guess maybe I don't own one, so I can't say for sure. But that's, <laughs> that's like true. there's there's all these limitations on a what can, what is possible and b what you can legislate when not everybody is self-driving. Like it's why trains still are probably the best like mass people mover because you know the cars are connected so they all move at the same speed but like if you take a self-driving car and tell it all the rules of the road there's still going to be somebody that acts unexpectedly and then the ai freaks out and crashes into something that's a good point i mean i feel like trains are self-driving for the most part right but they're on track yeah but if you have a car Everyone's got to be self-driving. I don't know. Right. I'm not a um, This is a way smaller thing, but it, when we're talking about variables, um, I guess it's probably like five years ago at this point, but like racing bicycles, like road racing bicycles, um, historically, like if you picture a brake on a bike, it's like a caliper that grabs the rim to slow it down. Um. And like disc brakes have been around like as a technology for a really long time, like cars have had them for 50 years, but like they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't allow them for use on bicycles and races because a tradition and B they were worried that because they can stop so much better. If you take half the riders that have disc brakes and half the ones that have brakes that grab the rim, if someone with a disc brake stops the person with the rim brake, can't stop fast enough and say they would run into the people. Um, And so they basically had to have a hard cutoff date of like, we are going to switch from rim brakes to disc brakes in professional cycling so that everybody has the same thing at the same time to like 
eliminate this cross-contamination. And that's like, I feel like with any technology, if you're trying to legislate it, that's almost what needs to happen. And I just don't think the people that make laws about, you know, the quote, you know, like the umbrella idea of AI are not well-versed or they don't understand the technologies that they're dealing with enough to make those decisions. And so it's either going to be really messy as stuff kind of comes in and out and people lose their jobs because they don't know how to talk about legislating it, or it's going to make it so that it's technology that's all ready to go, but can't be introduced anytime soon. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be nonprofits and stuff advocating for it in the government, help the government people understand, you know, but I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> I think it's going to be profits. Like, oh, I think any, you know, that's, that's kind of the whole thing behind, you know, web three, if you want to call it that is in the reason why there's so, all these false starts with whether it's, you know, the metaverse or NFTs or whatever is every time that one of those things like gets propelled into public consciousness, it's like the the companies that stand to profit from it are pushing for it and are trying to make regulations that benefit their model. Um, and then, you know, like Facebook changes its name to Meta and then nobody's talking about the metaverse anymore because it turns out making a 3D representation of a two-dimensional abstract of a store is not helpful for anyone. Like it's way it's way better to just have a 2d thing that you can easily navigate and so then it falls flat I that's just me being holding no that's actually true that, i mean there's but. so many a lot of things are profit motivated in governments now which is unfortunate i don't know why i suddenly forgot about that but i mean human nature in general right or at least not human nature but like you know societal changes in general yeah. i feel like there's the side, the existential side where it's like, what can we do? Like the pure science side. And that's the side where it's interesting to try to write a paper with, with AI or have it, you know, have a thought starter for a painting or whatever it is, or, you know, for a movie have special effects that are completely done and rendered without kind of the human capital side. But then when it comes time to actually implement that into day-to-day -day life, it's the people that are going to make money off of it that ultimately make the rules. And that's where it gets scary. Sad. Boo capitalism. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, no, no. We can say it. Boo capitalism. Technology <laughs> yeah. is great. Money ruins it. Uh, with most things, unfortunately. Yeah. Although capitalism is a part of life. So I feel like that is kind of an umbrella statement. Boo capitalism. Right. But also do capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the part of our show where we change it up a little bit. We take a step back from the big topic that we are talking about today. And we give something a little lighter, something a little smaller, something a little more inconsequential to uh, get off our chest. So I'm going to go first today. And my small rant for the day is that... So... I just got back from a weekend with my family. Like we went out of town and like took the kids and did Christmas Eve type stuff with them. Um, 
And the thing that I dread coming back from something like that is that first like meeting of the day when we get back to work. And the first thing that somebody says is, so what did you do this weekend? Or on the other side of things, we go to visit people and there's like the sit down and you're getting get ready to like have snacks or whatever. And the first thing someone says is like, so how's work going for you? And my rant is holiday small talk is awful. And small talk in general is awful. And partially that's because I don't know how. And I'm an anxious person, like socially and just in general. Um, and I don't want to talk about that stuff. If I wanted to tell you about it, I would have brought it up. But like, I can't not say anything. I can't say nothing. Like that makes me that makes me anxious because then it feels like maybe I am boring or neglect my family or whatever it happens to be. But like somehow, like this is where I'm in my element. If we can like be blowhards and just like, like talk a lot about something. But if we have to have these little bite-sized interactions about what we did over the weekend, like, sure, I get it. You're trying to break the ice and we're trying to kind of connect on some level but there's got to be a better way to do it. I wish there was like a sign that we could wear of like topics we want to talk about and we don't have to like just bring ourselves down to the level of trying to impress people with what we did over the weekend. I also hate small talk, but also because I'm bad at it. I understand why it's good and I want to be better at it, but I don't know what to, because I think I'm also the type of person who just like, doesn't know what to say or like doesn't really tell people that or like what I'm doing in my life so I think that's why it hard, why it's hard for me but I, I feel you maybe that's why we have a podcast <laughs> right yeah you know because to, to be honest I, I have to apologize like when we get on before we start broadcasting I never know what to say I never know what to ask you about because like to some Sorry, extent no to, to some to some extent I care about what you've been doing but also if we could just like come on and press record and never say anything except for what we're going to talk about like that would be way better for both of us I think and society <laughs> that's just I mean that's just like me though I'm just really awkward when it comes to stuff like that and like to your point I'm also like when I say like how are you it's like it's because I care, but also I realize when I say, how are you? Some people don't want to say what they're doing. So like in my head, I'm always doing like mental gymnastics of like, should I ask this person how they are? It's like the thing to do. If I don't ask them, are they going to be like, why isn't she asking how I'm doing? It's like a whole thing, you know? So, But also if it's not somebody that you have a super good rapport with, there's pressure to answer positively, right? Like if someone's like, how are you? And you and I'm like, bad that that invites a whole different conversation and maybe i just ruined their day too but like maybe i'm not good i but i'm always gonna say good and then i have to come up with some sort of supporting statement as to why i'm good because if i just say good and don't say anything else then they know i'm bad or they just then it's you know we look at each other's shoelaces and and then I go talk to someone else and you have to do the whole thing over again. We need to get past all that and into a conversation about something with substance. I think I personally, I think I just need to be less awkward. 
No, it's everybody <laughs> else. Yeah. It's I not guess us. Everyone feels, yeah. But yeah, I could get better at it. There's always things we can work on. But to your point, everyone hates small talk, so. So let's stop nice. it. Let's let's all get together and let's legislate a, a a new standard for how we begin conversations with people. I think that needs to happen. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how. Maybe but AI yes. can start it. We need AI. Thought, <laughs> that's why we need AI. We need them to generate a conversation. Just like break through the bullshit. Generate a prompt for me to talk about anything. Yeah, like it needs to be about a, me. You know what? That's a million dollar app idea. You, you remember? You, you remember the oh, game Heads true. Up, where you like, you know, you put yeah. the phone on your forehead, and it's like the, it's the, whatever you call that, categories or whatever. Yeah. You need to do that. But it's got to be like, you, know, you, you hit the random AI thing, and then you put your phone up to your forehead, and then it's like, ask me about wombats. <laughs> and I might not know anything about wombats, but it's better than talking about what I did last weekend. <laughs> That's such a good party idea, actually. I love it. <laughs> I think we win. I think we can stop the podcast. We've gotten our money's worth for the day. <laughs> Great business ideas. <laughs> um, my rants? which I have revised because I thought my last rant was too petty. It's more lighthearted. It's more about winter in general. I like winter. I like the cold, but I don't like going out in the cold and coming back because you have to put on so many layers to just go outside. And then when you come back, you have to strip all those layers because you're inside. But then if you have to go out again, you have to put on all those clothes again. And I feel like it just causes some friction in me wanting to like go out. But I think this is a universal thing. And it's not the worst problem to have. But it is in my mind sometimes. I'm just like, oh, I don't want to put on five sweaters. It's so much effort. And then it takes me too long to go outside. So it's always like whenever I have to go out, I have to like mentally prepare beforehand. (laughs) That is my small rant. So they tried to solve this uh, in Minneapolis by creating a skyway system. Oh, yeah. Did you ever use the skyway system when you lived here? No, just because it was well, mostly downtown. Well, and here's the problem. It killed downtown. Oh. So, so because they made the sky, the skyway system where it's, it's basically just a series of like tunnels and, and like glassed in bridges that connect all of the buildings downtown together and everything's like a, you know, a, a story off the street. Um, but because that's there and because it's cold six months of the year here, like all of the businesses in that area all moved into the Skyway system. So then like all of the street level businesses are basically the only people that are outside are people who don't work downtown. And all of the businesses are built around people that work downtown. So especially like when COVID happened, all of those businesses in the Skyway like died. And then when people started coming back to work, more or less, like those were still dead. But also there was no street level stuff if you weren't working downtown. So now the whole downtown block is just like a wasteland. And there's like nothing to do. Um, And like, I'm sure like people figure it out and it'll come back. But my, I guess my rant there is we need to figure out a better way because the, the, the solution cannot be never go outside. Like, that's what you want to do, but we've proven that that does not work. So we need to figure it. Um, that makes me think of Frosty the Snowman 2 is all about uh, somebody invents canned summer. 
that you can like spray oh. it on snow and it just gets rid of all the snow. <laughs> I like snow for what well, it is. Well, and then the moral of the story is it kills Frosty and so they can't do that. Oh, that's um, dark. It's super dark. It oh. Well, like it, it, it makes him cease to exist. So then they have to bring back winter. And it's pretty dark. That is so dark for a children's movie. So I unfortunately, I, I think unless we create some irreversible problems, we got to stick with five sweaters. I agree. I mean, it's like it happens every year. It's not a new issue and it's not the biggest issue. But I do think about it consciously sometimes before I go outside. I'm like, wow, the effort that winter takes. I miss summer when you could just like go out. I think you just I moved also, to the wrong place. I like it here. That's the thing is all the cool places have winter. Mm-hmm. That's not true. There are cool places with only summer. Like but what? then I feel like you would miss the winter. See? The grass is always greener. Name a cool place that doesn't have winter. Spain. Spain Barcelona. kind of has winter. Yeah, it depends where you are, to be fair. In North, North Spain has winter. Does Barcelona have winter? I think so. I don't know. I've only gone in the spring and summer, but I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. I mean, there's some places that have mountains that snow, but I think for the most part, it's just like slightly less warm. See, see, that's extra cool because they have winter on demand. (laughs) They warm whenever they want. And then if they have snow, they just like hop on their readily available public transportation (laughs) and they put their skis on their shoulder and all of a sudden they're in the Alps. That's and it's point. like a buck fifty and a slice of cheese to make it happen. They have a good system going on there, right? In it's a way, a, it's like California, I guess too. Yeah, you can go to the mountains, or same with Seattle, you can go up into the mountains and do oh, stuff. Yeah. That's true. Maybe those and then are the places the that don't places. have that, they seem cool, but then they have like tidal waves or hurricanes. Like where Florida? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's and true. Alligators. And Florida men. Yeah. And they're not actually cool. Yeah. That's how Malaysia is, too. It's just constantly thunderstorms. Just full of Florida men? Well, no. I hope not, at least. Not yet. It's more of just constantly raining. And So, like, Seattle, but tropical? Yeah. 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 It's like tropical rain. So it's hot. Hot rain. Yeah. You know... See, that doesn't sound good. True. Maybe I mean, maybe just, it's like, good. Yeah. At least I think I just place more, not importance. I just like summer a lot because I think, like, you associate it with, like, not being in school. So There is that. Yeah, I, I, my, both my parents were teachers growing up, and um, so everybody was home during the summer. And I didn't realize mm-hmm. until I grew up that it's not like that for most people. Like, you know, my kids get out of school and it's like, then you have to figure out what to do with them because I'm not off. I'm not off school. I know. You grow up and suddenly summer doesn't exist anymore. It, or barely. Tears. Tears. It doesn't have the same. It doesn't hit the same. Au revoir. Au revoir, Au revoir, And finally, this is the section where we give you our parting gifts. Parting gift is the part of the show where we give you a piece of media, a piece of advice, an activity, something to do to get you through to the next time we are able to get together and rant together. 
So I think this week, Sophia, why don't you go first? I'll go second. And Sophia, what is your parting gift? Yes. Okay. So my parting gift is a movie that I saw recently. It's the upcoming Studio Ghibli movie. It's called The Boy and the Heron. It's the first movie that studio has released in like years. I think the last movie they released in 2013. And... It is amazing. Like, I think I was going into it and I wasn't sure if I was just going to like it because it's a Studio Ghibli movie and I really like their movies. I think they're just like nostalgia coded. But when I watched it, I like genuinely really enjoyed it as like a movie and not just something that they came up with. And also it was crazy for me to watch one of those movies in theaters, like on the big screen, like seeing the logo come up with Totoro and saying like Studio Ghibli, I was like, what is happening right now? I'm like actually watching this in a theater. So it was just a really crazy experience. And I read afterwards that this is, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently this is like his last movie. And that made me so emotional. I was like, wow, this thing from childhood is now ending. And I don't know. It was just a good experience and even if you don't like studio ghibli movies it's a good it's like a really good movie the animation is amazing the storyline is very moving i think it's kind of darker than his other movies like it has some grit some loss some themes of like moving on which also made it sad because thinking of it as his last movie and then having so many themes about moving on and loss and grieving it's like man this guy is like old he's gonna pass away one day it's so sad but I would recommend watching that on the big screen because it was an experience that I haven't had before and I enjoyed it. So when you went to it, you went to it in the theater. Um, yes. Did you go with friends? Did you go by yourself? What was the viewing experience like? Like where did you sit in the theater? I went with my boyfriend and we went, or we were like sitting in the center, but like to the side a little bit, but it was still like centered. So I could see like the whole screen and there were a lot of people in there. It was on Thanksgiving. Ah. Yes. What was the demographic breakdown? Was it like all, I mean, you're, you know, you're near Columbia University. So like, was it all college kids or was it like families? Was it a bunch of old heads that grew up with Studio Ghibli stuff? It was kind of mixed, actually. I mean, there were, like I said, there were a lot of people and I wasn't expecting there to be so many people. Like there were families, but there were also like friends who went together and there were, um, um, older people so I would say it's pretty mixed and that's that was also interesting for me because I was like oh there are so many people who like Studio Ghibli like I kind of knew that in my head but like seeing them all turn out I was like oh wow this guy is very popular this movie is very popular so yeah um nice to see in the pantheon of Studio Ghibli movies where would you place it like was this like top tier mid tier like I guess what's your favorite Studio Ghibli movie my favorite is Howl's Moving Castle, but that's because, you know, I feel like when I'm rating movies, I just rate, it's like there's a difference between like objectively what the movie is like and also like what emotional ties that I have to that movie. Yeah, like, I'm saying like personal Howl's favorite, not best. Okay, okay. Personal favorite, Howl's Moving Castle. I would say this one ranks honestly pretty fi- pretty high like maybe like top three because I also felt an emotional connection because like I said I realized it was his last movie and I feel like everything in that movie tied to like that and it was my first experience watching it in the theaters so it just sure. feels special 
um what was the uh the subtitle slash dub situation was it an english dub or was it in japanese with subtitles oh this was like the japanese with subtitles i haven't watched the dub version well i don't know if there is one i i haven't seen it is there yeah because that was that was an interesting thing as as i got into it um you know like the first time i ever watched uh either totoro or like kiki's delivery service is my favorite um the first time I watched those movies, they were in Japanese with subtitles. And that was like baby's first foreign film for little Greg. And then watching with my kids uh, recently, um, they're all they're all dubbed with English voice actors and, and all that stuff. And it's a it's a different experience. I don't know if it's better or worse, but it is different. And so, yeah, I was just curious, like watching it for the first time. It was original you know basically original version that's dope straight from the studio yeah i'm not like a purist or anything i'm not like oh it has to be like subtitles with the original audio but i do think it's like pretty common i mean i don't know i haven't really watched like a ton of foreign films past like the past few years when like parasite and like korean movies started getting popular and then after that i feel like i've seen like an influx of like foreign movies come in and they're usually just subtitled like they're not dubbed anymore so I think that's why they did it this way, and I think people are less like opposed to it now. I think there's less of a stigma for sure. I think people are more used to reading while they watch. I almost yeah. think, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're like this, but in my house, we almost always have closed captioning on Me because too. it's easier to follow, and like, and it's easier to not get distracted. And I feel like that carries over to just having that muscle memory of being able to to kind of follow the track at the bottom of the screen and what's happening on the screen and be able to like parse that in your head. I feel like it's actually a benefit to open up people's eyes to foreign films like that. I agree. I'm a captions girl, 100%, cause I get distracted. <laughs> yeah. Right, ADHD culture for the win. Yep. <laughs> okay, so my parting gift, um, did you ever play the computer game Mist? Actually, I haven't heard of it. Okay, it's okay. So again, it's an old game. It was like one of the original like must-have CD-ROM games, like when computers started having CD-ROM drives because it was like it was as far as like the graphics and like how big the game was, it was the first one that you couldn't really fit on a like on a floppy disk or hard drives at the time, so you needed a CD drive. But basically what it was was an adventure game that was basically like if you ever played like a like an escape room game where it's basically like you're on a screen and you have to figure out the puzzle to get out of the room. So this was like the original that. Um, and it was this whole uh, adventure game where you are on an island and then like you're solving puzzles to get through the island and eventually you figure out these. Uh, there's the lore of the game is there are these books that like you open them up and you can write in the book to basically like it's kind of like the original multiverse game. Like you could write in the book to then like link to another universe or another multiverse and then go to that thing. And the game was like, that was how they kind of structured it where you had this hub Island and then you would go to this book and put your hand on the book and it would take you to this new place. Well, that was so popular that they made a book series. There's, I think there's more now, but there was a trilogy that they originally came out with. And my recommendation uh, for a parting gift this week is the third book in the trilogy. It's the Miss Trilogy. You can find it as like a compendium for like seven bucks or whatever. Um, but it's called The Book of Dunny. Um, and that's like the the mythical 
uh, civilization that is part of this world that you're in. And kind of the story goes, the, the society that the game is based in is super insular and super focused on puzzles and like kind of decoding things. And like, just because a, that's what the game is like, but then they kind of built this whole lore around people that are obsessed with that sort of thing. Um, so the story goes, they get to this other world and it's this super fantastical, super opulent society. And basically the story that goes along with the book of Dunny is them unraveling all of the opulence and all of kind of the facade of this world that they've gone into and seeing all of the cracks and all of the seams in it and how they actually make those things happen. And kind of the moral of the story is stripping away pretense and figuring out um, what's behind it and why things don't always kind of end up being the same thing that they seem when you first when you first realize um i think that kind of ties into what we a what we do on this podcast is just talking through things and trying to figure things out but then also um kind of the way that i approach the world and the, you know this book came out in the late 90s so i was in junior high um and i think that sentiment has always kind of informed how i look at things in the world and so if you are interested in things like the idea of AI and the underpinnings of it. This is kind of an interesting thought experiment in how you might go about um, breaking those things down and coming to a better understanding of what they are. So uh, missed the book of Dunny. Uh, it's by Rand Miller and David Wingrove, who wrote a bunch of fantasy books in the nineties as well. Um, it's a good read. Nice. Thank you. It's fiction, right? It is fiction. Oh, okay. So it's like one of those fiction books that also make you like think. Not that right. fiction yeah, books like it, you know, it's you it's a so yeah, it's like it, it, they're like an extended universe novelization of what the games are and the games are already like story-driven pieces. Um but yeah, if you like puzzly type stuff, if you like fantasy stuff, if you you should probably play the games too cuz they they hold up pretty well especially if you like escape room type games where you're solving puzzles and you know making math equations work and all that stuff and if you find that at all appealing as a game um the world around it and the lore behind it is pretty cool too nice i feel like sci-fi writers are so talented you have to really make a whole world and we've talked about this like it's the it's the writer who has that drive to create a system to create worlds and has that understanding of whether it of the science of things whether that's anthropology or science or biotech or anything like that and being able to turn that into a narrative always makes the narrative super interesting right like not to tangent but i found out recently that the lord of the rings author was like a linguist yeah. or something and so he created like the whole language of elvish like that's insane the passion that's so cool there's a whole book you can get if you want to learn it on elvish oh i think it's a duolingo course too <laughs> <laughs> i think you're probably right amazing and that was today's episode thank you for listening hopefully it gave you some nuggets of thought about robots and their um role in our lives 
If you want to email us about suggestions or any thoughts on the episode, our email is thebetpodcast at gmail.com. And we also have an Instagram at thebetpod where hopefully I will one day get together. But you can submit DM and the other content there on the podcast. But thank you again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. And au revoir.